Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. But in this case, I highly recommend you do it anyway because this book is great. Uh, today, we are blessed to be joined by M.E. O'Brien and Ayman Abdelhadi, the co-authors of the book, Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072, which is out now on Common Notions. Uh, yeah, so thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Heck yeah, so the title of this book, the title alone just should be making any communist listening to this show just salivate, because mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I think about I think about the rev a lot <laughs> and what things might be like if we ever managed to do the thing. Um, how did you two get together, make friends, and decide to work on this book? Well, uh, we have been friends for about 10 years. Um, we went to graduate school together. We were both um, PhD students at NYU. Um, Emmy was a year ahead of me, and I ended up moving a block away from her in um, Brooklyn. Um, and so we just hung out all the time and talked about science fiction and revolution and communism. And in some ways, the book is a sort of culmination of all those conversations. So uh, she wrote a chapter uh, or what would become a chapter um, and published it in uh, an online magazine. Uh, so it was a speculative oral, fic oral fiction. Um, and she asked me if I wanted to do a whole novel. And the answer was yes. <laughs> so that's, yeah, the rest is history. Cool. Can I, can I ask so you? I should is there a basket follow up real quick? Because um, I just wanted to know what, why did you choose the structure of an oral history and in interviews, right? As opposed to um, sort of, I guess, like, um, you know, laying it out as a narrative of like, this is what happened, this is what happened. Why did you choose to do interviews instead? And especially interviews like when characters reflecting on what happened to them and their personal experiences. Both me and the man are oral historians. We spend a lot of time interviewing people. I coordinated the New York City Trans Oral History Project for three and a half years. A man does a lot of long-form life course interviews as part of her research into Muslim Americans and gender and uh, community dynamics. And so we're used to interviewing people. It, it's a form that comes easily. We're able to do it quickly and feel comfortable in it. And um, there are a lot of things that are really interesting about it as a narrative form in that it kind of bridges the individual and the collective, the subjective and the objective in some really dynamic ways. So you get somebody telling you their experience, which might or might not be exactly what happened and is inflected, distorted through their own desire, their own aspirations, their own traumas, their own fears. So it's a way of kind of exploring both psychological elements, experiential elements, and social, political, economic, structural elements uh, without uh, sort of 
reifying or fetishizing one of those levels too much so that there can be a kind of dynamic back and forth play between them throughout the whole book. And that's that's an effect that I think we were both interested in pursuing intuitively, even if we might not have articulated it that way, and that, that in the course of the book we were able to really grapple with. I think if we had done it either as interior monologues in people's heads, as some literature is, or as sort of objective historical narrative, we would have run into a lot more problems of trying to reconcile how we see these different pieces connected together. But here the form is really allows us to uh, put them into play together and in tension with each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. I could see that. Yeah, I think in the beginning um, you mentioned that oral history is like the, the most, um, uh, like best, the best way, I guess, to kind of analyze history. And that is because of this like kind of personal, like, um, like tinge that people give to it, as you say, like people may not remember events as they actually happened, but does it matter that they don't remember events as they actually happened? I don't necessarily think so. So I really like the format that you guys picked. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. same. So, okay, let's talk about communization a little bit. <clears throat> because I think sometimes people think it's a confusing concept. I think it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm sure there are people who understand it on like wildly different levels. Um, but I think this book is very much influenced by communization theory. Uh, I mean, I know it is because you talk about it in the book. Uh, can you briefly describe what that is? Sure. Uh, so communization theory has a kind of narrow and specific meaning in after the May 68 uprisings in France, uh, left communist people in the council communist tradition uh, really grappling with and sort of merging with some of the aftermath of the Situationist International and the critiques of work that came up in the May 68 uprising started rethinking core concepts of communism and uh, out of that came Teori Communiste and Tycoon and a number of other uh, Dave currents that are really quite interesting and rich. And then in the English-speaking world, EndNotes drew a lot from Teori Communiste and helped kind of create I mean, Tycoon also influenced another kind of parallel current, um, but uh, communization uh, as it, I, it influences me is via Teori Communiste and EndNotes. And all of this is very esoteric, kind of highbrow, obscure, not quite academic, but definitely marginal communist theory. But I think there is some very accessible, very popular, straightforward elements to it that uh, make for great literature and make for a fun way of writing. That communization is very critical of the idea that um, capitalist social relations could be a path to communism. That uh, a kind of capitalist structure of the state I write about the nuclear family, the private family, uh, market exchange, commodity exchange, wage labor. Like all of these were actually a major part of state socialism. And they're all to varying degrees capitalist social forms. And that, that as capitalist social forms, they are quite adept at reproducing themselves and expanding at relying on and interconnecting and reinforcing each other in complex ways. And that the way to get to communism is direct communist social relations. So making things 
from each according to her ability to each according to her need and redistributing goods based on human need, restarting production based on human need, and that being a direct mass collaborative process involving huge numbers of people trying to figure out the world they want to live in together. And that doesn't, that doesn't strike me as opaque or obscure at all. Like it's, I think a notion that is very compelling to lots of people. And if they're not kind of, indoctrinated in one school of socialist theory or another, it, I think, comes very easily as a vision of revolution. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, go on. It was certainly intuitive to me, despite me not knowing any of this uh, history or any of these debates. So I I could definitely say that I'm more the intuitive, I have a more intuitive relationship with communization than than folks who are in the know. One one piece of your politics, man, that I think had a big impact on the book that really resonates with communization theory is your skepticism about the state, uh, your sort of recognition of the state and capital being interconnected. Could you, would you be up for saying a bit more about that and how it influenced the book? Is that, do you guys yeah, know? We definitely, we definitely have some yeah. state questions. I was just going to say communization is basically what I thought communism was when I first uh, started to be interested in it and thought it sounded like a good idea. And then like I learned history of how communist movements have actually gone and they've almost never gone that way. But it does seem like a very simple thing, right? The workers seize the means of production and they start producing for the people directly. Like what could be simpler than that? But um, what were you going to say about the state? Well, you know, one of our sort of key understandings or like one of the kind of theories behind the book is that the modern nation state basically has to fall in order for capitalism to fall. So the nation state as a sort of guardian of capitalist relations, right, um, or we see the nation state as a guardian of capitalist uh, creation uh, market relationships, but um, we also know that states vary in their strength, right? So you have right now you have states that fail all the time and there are, you know, folks who study failed states. Um, but what happens is other nation states prop them up, right? Because they're invested in the form. And one of the sort of core theories of the book in terms of the revolutionary transition is that there's so much crisis in part because of sort of capitalism's overheating, but also because of climate change, um, that there's so much crisis that the state is no longer able to keep up and states are are increasingly preoccupied with their own crises and unable to prop each other up. And so you have a sort of mass sort of collapse of the state system, which which opens up space for um, for capitalism to fall because you no longer have the sort of um, the, the, the weaponry and the, and the, you know, sort of, um, monopoly on violence that the state has. So, uh, that's a sort of core argument of the book. And it also plays into the, the, the timeline of the world that we're building, because one of the first places to sort of revolutionize is the Levant. So we thought about, you know, which areas already have really weak states, like which states are most likely to fall um, first. And so we were thinking about the Levant. Also, I just wanted to write a chapter where we, where we liberated Palestine. Um, and so, Hell yeah. That's, Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. so that's, you know, so it, it, it worked out pretty well, you know, to start in a kind of liberated 
Levant and we liberate Palestine in a not in a nationalist way, not to create a Palestinian state, but as part of an entire sort of revolutionary transition of the region. Hmm. Can I can I ask a question too? Because um, in the book, the United States is like pretty much the last like nation state standing, right? Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because um, there were a lot of things reading the book where I was like, man, I could totally imagine this happening. You explained the book, but why is, is the United States the last nation state to fall? Like why? Because I think that's something that I think about it all the time. That's probably likely, right? It's not going to yeah. happen here, right? So kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it, it, the, the, the U.S. is a remarkably strong state, right? I mean, it's strong militarily. It's 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 one of the bigger sort of um, has one of the bigger bureaucratic apparatuses. Um, and I think that, you know, if we're following this theory that the weaker states are going to fall first because they're unable to to maintain, you know, in the face of crisis, um you know, the the U.S. comes sort of last, but we are we do imagine a world in which the U.S. is also dealing with so much crisis that it is at first just unable to extend its sort of imperial reach as like global policemen. We're already seeing that. Right. Um, it's just sort of unable to do that. It doesn't really have the capacity and increasingly crises within its borders are weakening it day by day. Um but it is the last to fall simply because it's, you know, it's just one of the strongest. Um, and because of the high, because when you have a high, relatively high standard of living, right, um, there are also bigger swaths of the population that are sort of bought in or, you know, or, or, or willing to kind of step in um, when when things fall apart. Whereas I think when you when you read the chapter about the Levant and when you read, you know, there's hints at other revolutions, um what you see is that you have just like mass immiseration. And I think those of us who have a relationship with parts of the world that don't have such strong states, right? Um, you know, my family is Egyptian on one side and Palestinian on the other. And I mean, the Egyptian state is very um, heavy handed and, and very big, but it doesn't have a ton of it doesn't have a ton of buy-in, right? It's it's definitely, you can feel that it's a state that's sort of teetering on, on the edge. Um, and increasingly, you just have such mass immiseration. Um, so as we were writing this, you know, the Lebanon crisis was in full swing and it continues to be. It's getting a lot less attention now, right? But you have people spending eight hours a day waiting for gas, right? So people are not going to be invested in the sort of nations, a nation state that can't deliver on its most basic promises. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And just to add a comment, um, you know, there's uh, this like ecological crises all over the world right now. But in Mississippi and the South specifically, I saw this mm-hmm. video of brown water coming out of someone's faucet. And I mean, these are the things that lead to insurrection, right? I exactly. mean, this is the richest country in the history of the world. And we have a black city without water, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, like, again, like you were saying, like, even in the United States, where the standard of living is so high and people are kind of bamboozled, right, by this yeah. myth of what this country is, we see the contradictions lay bare, right, in situations well, like this. Yeah, and one hundred, one hundred, and we're we we're thinking about a world in which these contradictions are proliferating at a rate that mm-hmm. can't be, you know, they can't just be patched up the way they're being patched up now, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, notably, in our book, Jackson, Mississippi, it becomes the headquarters of a new African People's Republic yeah. that yeah. is a leading revolutionary force in North America, and the military struggle there uh, ends up drawing. 
the U.S. military out of New York City in, in 2052 during the U.S. military occupation, which then enables the revolution to really kick off beginning the events in, in our book. And uh, what ends up happening to Jackson is really quite horrific. I mentioned in passing a few times in the book, the U.S. ends up launching a nuclear strike against the city, and it really destroys the very last of the legitimacy of the state. But like the the tremendous leadership and heroism of the struggle in, in Jackson and across the uh, Deep South is really a driving force in making revolution in North America possible in the first place, as it's already unfolded across the Andes and the Maghreb and Shanjin and uh, the Levant. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that when I was reading about what happened to Jackson, because, you know, you have people saying on the one hand, oh, the U.S. government would never bomb a city of its own citizens. But we they basically are doing that in a more passive way, but mm. nevertheless, a violent way. Uh, the thing that's missing is the people fighting back in large enough numbers to win. So to it's really not that far-fetched when you think about, you know, really the the, the, the prequel, the, mm. the echoes that are happening right now in our real world. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I had a question about the state, actually, because um, we have talked a lot about this on our podcast. Uh, it's an area where we don't all agree. Um, we just did Lenin's The State and Revolution, and I wanted to talk about what makes something a state, because I noticed that Lenin uses a few different definitions at various points in this piece, um, one of which is simply any organized use of force to hold power over an area, which kind of seems to encompass everything short of like full-on anarcho-primitivism. Uh, other places, he has a different definition of what the state is, specifically the worker state. But um, how would you folks define statehood? And how is it different from the sort of federated commune system and the people's militias that are described in the book? Um, so definitions are arbitrary human constructions, right? We are, uh, there are concepts that we use to try to parse and divide up the world. Like the state is not a, a sort of actually existing, like easily defined phenomenon. There's a vast range of social institutions that Marxists consider be to be the state. Liberals think of something else as the state. And like these are these are political questions, how we define it and how we think about it. Um, I I don't particularly think of myself as an anarchist. I don't draw that much from the anarchist tradition. I, I find reading Marxist theory about how capitalism works to be ultimately much more helpful. Um, I have spent time in kind of Leninist circles. I was in a post-Maoist organization for a while. But ultimately, I think the project of forming socialist states under a ruling party uh, where it was a disaster and we need to try something else. And who knows what else would work, but we've got to try. We, we have to be theoretically open to sort of thinking about other approaches. And uh, the notion that the state as it exists now is 100% a 
capitalist social form strikes me as very obvious. And then throughout the history of humanity, states have really been very tied up with class society. Um, I, I, I just finished a book that will be out in June called Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communization of Care. And it's from a, you know, a left post-Trotskyist publisher, Pluto Press. And my editor pushed me a little bit on my assumed anti-statism throughout the book. So I needed to end up writing a few pages about what I thought the state was and why it was bad. And what I described is the state as a social form that is severed or that is removed from the social body as a whole. So workers' councils, popular militias, communes, assemblies of people in the streets, uh, planning forums where people are sort of hashing out how to coordinate production or distribution that we describe in the book. None of these things uh, fit the definition of state as I formulated it. All of these things uh, engage in state functions. They stay engage in the activity of governance, but it's not in a governance of sort of one inst bounded institution over society that the vast majority of society participates in governance. And uh, at points in state and revolution, that is what Lenin proposes. And the fact that that didn't work out is a really notable pivot in the history of the Russian Revolution. But for a brief moment there, for the first two or three years of revolution, I think there really was a level of mass collective participation in governance that made that made what was happening in Russia briefly communism. So in our book, the social forms that ultimately emerge are directly grow out of mass insurrection. They are directly sort of strategies of collective survival pioneered by people in the course of rebellion. And they are sort of broadly the the commune, a sort of social unit of a few hundred people, a few blocks of New York City, eating together, arguing together, making decisions together, being interdependent with each other, and then they might form families within that. The assembly as a sort of place where multiple tendencies and factions and communes come together and argue things out. And then we don't talk about as much, but the planning forums, which are sort of a huge online world of people arguing about production and distribution and trying to figure out who needs to be involved in decisions and really replacing kind of the price transactions as kind of the basic unit of social coordination. Yeah, man's good. Yeah, I, I, no, I have to say that I, I, um, Jamie has been on this communization thing for like a minute now, and she's like always <laughs> trying to kind of rope me in. And at first, I didn't know what it was, but actually reading, reading parts of your book, um, and Jamie, I think you've described as like one easy trick to communism, you know. And I think when I think about the uprising, I don't know about easy. But well, yeah. not easy, not easy, but you know, I think about the uprising a couple years ago, and I don't know. This just seems like. I don't know, like it just seems something that's more um, um, more agreeable to people, something that like it seems more natural even, so to speak, you know what I mean? That there would be a sort of mass uprising and insurrection as opposed to, you know, kind of these failed models. Well, not entirely failed, but I would say outdated at least models of the past, right, of socialist organizing. So, and Jorge's like rolling his eyes again, but Jorge, what, what, what do you, because you had, um, you, you, uh, 
you had you some, spend the most yeah. time in the organized left. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe you should ask our question on that. Uh, I think Aaron and I have both kind of taken a step back from DSA. Mm. Jorge is still doing it. He's doing admirable work. But um, but like, yeah. Do you want to? Jorge, you there? You yeah, talk sure. About, you want to you want to ask about that because the organized left does, plays like a marginal role at best mm. in this revolution that happens in this book, and it's sort of uh, I don't know. On the one hand, like hopeful because like I'm like, well, it's gonna happen anyway, so that's great, even if we fuck it up. But then it's also a little demoralizing, right? Because it's like, well, what, what are we wasting our time on? Mm. Well, I don't think it's demoralizing. I think it's like inevitable, like. If you think that you're going to convince everybody, I think that's flawed. I mean, I mean, uh, and you brought up the example of like the Russian Revolution. Bolshevik, the, the Communist Party, had only like a few thousand in the beginning of the revolution. Only through the process of struggle did they then, oh, by like 1921, had like 700,000 members. Like, even like I just don't, I don't think there's like this like hard distinction, I guess, in terms of like organized left or not, in the sense that if there is going to be an organized left. It's gonna probably always be like a small fraction in the beginning, or 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 it would just take on a new form, like kind of like how I imagine in this book, like the communes and the councils. Mm. So, but um, the question here, I guess, is like, you know, since the revolution in the book is carried out by armed groups of proletarians who are not necessarily communists at the outset, but the struggles take on a communist character because communization is the most practical way to stay alive, as you describe it, to people who spend their time on the organized left. Uh, you said, Jamie, it's like, you know, it might be hopeful, but it might be demoralizing. But what kind of changes, if any, within the organized left would need to happen for it to actually be helpful in overthrowing capitalism, building communism, in either of your opinions? Well, the book definitely isn't a blueprint or a template. Uh, one review came out of our book, Inspector, that I think is sort of written by an ex-Trotskyist uh, and who's very sympathetic and very loving and very supportive and has been very kind to us. And I think is trying to turn our book a little bit into a platform or a program. You know, that sort of he feels the absence of a platform and is sort of seeking out another one and through our book hopes the communization could provide that and i you know like communization i i'm not as critical of platforms as some people but communization really took shape as a direct critique of the platform as the basis of organizing so like our book is definitely not meant to like provide a template to anyone like the problems of organizing need to be figured out in the course of organizing. And uh, there are a handful of struggles around. I have enough exposure to that I have some opinions around, you know, but like I'm just far from being able to tell most people what they should be doing. Um, but I will say that I think there is a very serious disjuncture and problem between the dynamics of relatively spontaneous mass uprising and what organizations see as the role in leadership of the movements. Mm -hmm. And that this is a very serious problem, and it comes up again and again and again, where all these organizations are trying to make something happen, but it's extremely difficult to make anything other than pathetic reformism happen. Like, and even pathetic reformism is very hard to achieve. So organizations are sort of struggling and failing, struggling and failing. And then suddenly 
there's two million people in the streets really upset about George Floyd's murder and the biggest uprising in American history. You know, like 20 million people went to marches. You know, the National Guard was in dozens of cities. Like, it was this incredible uprising. And suddenly all these organizations are, like, vying for relevance They're trying to get people to siphon into their organization. They're trying to redirect the work into their political frameworks or concepts. They're trying to, like, impose a platform to some extent. And they might have something to offer the struggle. Like, I'm not saying, I mean, the skilled revolutionaries might show up and have something to offer. But instead of offering anything useful, they often show up with the platform then this is a critique from communization theory, theory, the platform from the previous wave of struggle, the organizational forms of the previous wave of struggle, and the ways of thinking from the previous ways of struggle. And those have been defeated. They have, they have been proved failures on some level. And that the rebellion that takes shape in the present always has new strategies, new organizational forms, and new ideas mixed in with the old. And those new qualities, organizational cadre of all political stripes, are often very poorly seated to very poorly suited to spot, to appreciate, or to learn from. So where we could show up and be of tremendous help, instead we show up and try to impose our ideas. And that, you know, if our ideas worked, they would have worked a long time ago. Like, they, they are one offer that we can make to a much broader conversation that we need to be a part of, both with humility and respect. I'm zooming out a little bit. I think, of the, I think the intervention of the book is to allow a space for imagining possibilities that are... Um, I mean, I think we're living in such a bleak moment and I think people are really um, struggling to imagine a different a different world and and one that isn't, you know, and the sort of cliche that you hear is that it's easier to imagine the end of, you know, human civilization than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And I think that for me, the intervention of the book is to reclaim the right to imagine something outside of capitalism in which we do the things that we have seen people do over and over in struggle, which is to resist the forms um, that are imposed on us by whether it's the state or the market or whatever, um, and to do something totally different, you know, um, and, and to, to follow a more sensical, as we're talking about communization as a sort of intuitive um, an intuitive transition um, for people to do the thing that makes much more sense than the way that we live right now. Um, and so I think for me, that is an important political intervention, even outside of the sort of like day to day organizing. I don't think it replaces it. But I think that um, and I think the success of the book has been, you know, Michelle and I are always joking like, oh, people like our nerdy, weird, queer commie book. Um, and it's just and I think it's particularly because there's just been so little room to to picture anything else. Um, so for me, that's the kind of that's the political intervention that I'm more interested in than the kind of specific day to day functioning um, on the left. And I don't say that dismissively. I think organizing is in- incredibly important and, and not to be replaced by anything else. But I see this as augmenting that work. For sure. For sure. 
And I'm sure I will find a project that I can jump into and believe in very soon. <laughs> I'm trying my best. I could probably try harder. Um, but you are talking about the purpose that you want your book to serve. And um, I had... I had a question on utopian socialism because I know it's sort of uh, controversial within Marxist circles, right? Like Marxists going all the way back to Marx have cautioned us against it, against getting too detailed in our vision of what communism or the transition to communism might maybe look like because that's, you know, quote unquote, unscientific and quote unquote, utopian. And that is implicitly bad. But, you know, people have been producing these visions for a long time anyway, going back to Fourier, shout out to the little Fourier Easter egg in the book, uh, and even earlier, I think, even before capitalism started. So what purpose do you think stories like this serve, and what do you think of the Marxist critique of utopianism? I, I, I guess you started to answer this in the last answer, but maybe you have further thoughts. Um, so I, I have a lot to say about this. I've been thinking about this a lot. It's, uh, it comes up in my nonfiction book as well. I, I think the Marxist critique of utopian socialism is essentially correct that, uh, we cannot plan the future, that ideas about the free society should not be used as a template or as a blueprint that we, uh, struggle is not winning people over to a particular vision that then we, uh, then tried to convince them to implement that, uh, that all the utopian socialists had a fundamentally misguided understanding of how struggle happens. And the Marx discovered correctly along with, you know, some colleagues and a struggle at the time, the core mechanisms of social change, uh, being really driven by the internal class contradiction of society. Uh, and that people figure out the future in the middle of it, in the middle of facing problems that they are trying to figure out solutions to. And I think that's all correct. And I think utopian visioning has a very powerful role to play in the present in struggle. And that we, whenever people are fighting, they are always implying revolutionary horizons uh, through how they organize, through the sorts of rhetoric people use, through the sorts of uh, program proposals people make. People are implying futures and that actually unfolding, fleshing out, sketching those futures is a very powerful creative act that could help inform and enrich all our political work. Not as a blueprint, but as a way of grappling with and exploring some of the complexities of our current values, our current commitments, and our current ways of organizing. Um, I think one really striking example of this for me is the way that abolition, the abolition of the police, went from being a relatively marginal concept of serious revolutionaries to being taken up by like millions and millions of teenagers on social media over the course of the recent rebellion. And it was like, all these kids grappling with this idea of a revolutionary horizon, you know, like getting rid of police would be the end of class society, like, or, or it'd be a lot of chaos. One of those. Um, and, you know, they were like grappling with this idea and that the more fleshed out those debates are in what people are imagining, 
the sort of better and deeper and richer they are. And it's a tremendous amount of fun. Like there's a lot of joy to kind of offering the ideas of what we're fighting for in the most realistic way we can, but also in a hopeful way. Um, yeah. I, I, that's what I really liked about um, this book was that, like, Amon, like you were saying, we live in a time of futurelessness, basically. Like, nobody can imagine a future, not even a better future, but even, like, a better, even a tomorrow, right? Like, even the idea of, like, what is this country going to look like in 50 years? I mean, I get, like, hives thinking about it, right? And, like, your book actually presents a, not just a vision of a future, but the idea that there is one, you know? And I think that's, like, really appealing to, like, I mean, obviously leftists, but especially young people, right? I mean, that's why I think so many young people were out in the streets because they were like, wait, man, I actually have like a role in like shaping like this collective destiny. Right. I think people understood that to some level, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it really like when I think about the number of my friends who are staying, I mean, I, I think I'm not sure that it's really the reason. But, you know, people say they don't want kids because they... Mm you know, they can't imagine a future for those, for those children. I mean, like, that's, that's so bleak. And it's said so casually now, right? Like, there's this moment. And I, I think it's funny, because people keep talking about our book in terms of utopia. And I had this moment the other day, I was speaking at socialism. And I was like, you know, it's funny that, and I don't, I don't, yeah, it's funny that our book is being categorized as utopic like that actually says a lot about the state of the world because mm -hmm. there's so much dystopia in the book like things get so much worse before they oh get for, like yeah, <laughs> for like but, decades yeah i mean half of the book is people just recounting all the traumatic horrible things that happened to them during the fall of capitalism but like one of you goes yeah. to prison camp for a while <laughs> emmy goes to prison camp um you know so it's just like very um yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I think that, you know, in some ways, and I think this goes back to one of the earlier questions about oral history, oral history lets us get to the other side. Right. In a way that I think would have been really difficult to do with a traditional novel because we'd have so many decades to cover. Um, and, but I think it's that that idea that like there might be something on the other side um, of the, the 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 horrible future that we're all hurtling towards right now. You know, I think I think that's that's the sort of like glimmer of of utopia in the end. But, you know. As I keep saying, we don't petition our way out of capitalism, right? Like there's no yeah. change.org email email list. And then we're like, all right, we're done. You know, like things get really bad in this imagined future. Um, yeah. I mean, I think everyone agrees that things are going to get really bad in the coming years. But, you know, the crazy people like <laughs> us think that it's possible that they might get better again at the end and that that better thing could be communism. Yeah. But that it like I get it why people think that's crazy utopian, even though there's also a lot of violence and trauma because it is on some level, you know, a happy not ending, a happy continuing for humanity as people figure out how to build a better world and one that works for everyone, even though there are still lots of problems, right? Like I like that you deal with, uh, you know, people aren't just magically perfect creatures in this world. Like there's a part about how you deal with child abuse, how you deal with interpersonal harm. And, you know, that's stuff that abolitionists are always talking about because, you know, the systems we have right now are demonstrably not working. Um, but okay, we have like five minutes left. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to ask about so many things. I feel like we definitely need to do more. Um, mm -hmm. But the family abolition chapter, 
I think was interesting to me because even me reading it as a communist, that was maybe the only place where I really felt myself pushing back against this reality because, you know, I could buy armed groups of people uh, defeating the NYPD. I could buy, uh, you know, the various states falling. But when it comes to baby fever, like I, this is something that I know is real because I have it and I wish I didn't, <laughs> but you know, people have been getting it for a pretty long time and it seems like it would be hard to ever really get rid of it. Uh, I mean, if you can, let me know because I like cannot afford to support children <laughs> right now. Sign, sign me up for that, for that. For that uh, cure as well, please. If you, if you find it, but like, yeah, like for some reason, I just like really fucking want to. I want to like make a people in thing, our book have baby fever. People in, in my... our book are so excited about giving birth. But the but okay, Everyone so at, <laughs> I'm on board with like almost all of it except for the the delinking right of biological parentage gestation and uh you know actual parenting like raising the children so why i mean not that this book is a program but i do know you especially michelle have written a lot on family abolition like why and is this it... is a man's chapter <laughs> mm, indeed so like why is it a valuable why is it a good idea to try to sort of change the way people do this when we've been doing it one way for so long and it's just like so deep in our lizard brains but we haven't i think that's the thing i think the more anthropology you read and and historical anthropology specifically i think the more it's clear that like this version of parenting this sort of like ownership model is actually like quite recent and very you know and very specific to sort of to to western culture i mean you have i've, I've actually been reading um david graber's last book that's been that the his, uh, there, something of every God, the history of everything of or something like yeah and the dawn, you know, the dawn of everything and the dawn history of, of everything yeah. yeah that and um sex at dawn are two books that i think have were were big kind of shifts oh, for dude. me um uh, have you read i yeah i love sex at dawn once you can get past like how purple the prose is it's obviously <laughs> like a horny boomer poly guy wrote this book <laughs> I, I find it very like anthropologically interesting i know you know i've been listening to it on audible and and it's a woman um reading it and i'm like this is so much more soothing for my soul. Than <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but the, you know, the point is that, you know, we haven't always linked parent parenting in the same way. And I think, um, I, I think that the, the idea here isn't that like people have kids and then those kids are like torn away from them. It's rather that there's a lot of capacity and diversity for different forms such that, you can have your baby fever without having to worry about affording to raise those kids, right? Mm, so, like, yeah. you can have... Oh, I the, definitely agree with that. Yeah. Uh, all of the collective childcare part, all of that, I'm totally on board with. Yeah. Wish we had it now, because, <laughs> you know, probably not going to get it by the time I have kids. But, like, the fact of knowing, like, who your biological child is and, like, having lots of help with it, but at the same time... I mean, it's obviously, like, narcissistic on some level, right? Like, I want a kid with both of our faces on it. And maybe <laughs> maybe someday we'll have the technology to do that, like, in a throuple. But, uh, yeah, sorry. I was asking, like, primarily about that. Because, like, I can't really justify it 
either, like from a rational point of view, why I want like a fucking mini me running around. It's just like, I don't know. I don't think about it that hard because I'm like, well, you know, a well, lot of people want a, that. If that's a fantasy that you have, Jamie, uh, in our future, you can have it. That child isn't your property. Uh, it's that child belongs only to themselves. But like you could be a primary parent of of a child that is your biological descendant. Like we don't, there's no prohibition on that at all. Oh. That is not a universal fetish, right? Oh, a of lot of people, not. right? A lot of people adopt. A lot of people do, you know, all sorts of crazy ways of getting a hold of children. I have a stepchild, right, who I've lived with for the last ten years, eleven years, and and like I. I don't consider that relationship at all inferior to if they were my biological descendant. Mm. You know, that the idea of biological uh, kinship as being a sort of necessary feature of familyhood has never has never been true. And and if somebody, you know, wants to live that way, our book has plenty of room for that. The important thing is flexibility. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. The important thing in the book is flexibility and the delinking of your material well-being from yeah. who you family with, as we put it, right? Whether that's in terms of parenting and, or in terms of partnership, um, like romantic partnership or whatever. Um, cool. I am so interested in everything that you're saying. Michelle has to go. Emmy, I'm so sorry. sorry. I would Your love to. Sci-fi no, name. Either is fine <laughs> at this point. Um, I would be happy to schedule another conversation. I'm very sorry to let you all down. I know scheduling mm. five people together is hard. Jorge, oh, no I hope you're doing okay. I see you're quite quiet. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I would be glad to chat with you all again very, very soon. And Absolutely. Uh, there uh, were... Uh, yeah, that would be awesome. That'd be awesome because I have questions about your space chapter because I I fucking love space and like <laughs> space what you talk so about cool. this private. Yo, it's so cool. The privacy. I I mean, hopefully we can like uh, reschedule another uh, interview because I really like that chapter. That sounds great. Great. Yeah. Also, yeah. a man's chapter, notably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would do okay. the I would do the Vulcan salute, but I can't actually do it. So pretend that I'm doing it. <laughs> live long. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> live long. Oh, and yeah. I am a diehard Trekkie. Okay. Yes, me oh. too. Talk with you all soon. Yeah. Oh my god! To talk about. Where do you live, Eric? Oh my god! I'm in Atlanta. I love. I just was actually watching. Oh well, god. this morning, the next. Are you guys doing the Radical Book Fair next month? Uh, what? Yeah, in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Yeah. yeah, we yeah. do do it in Atlanta. I haven't actually haven't been in like two years. I want to go. It's yeah, in October. Yeah, they invited yeah, me to be there. Whatever keynote, Come. but I'm at a Lacan oh, conference cool. in Pittsburgh that weekend. Oh, man. Oh. Yeah. A man should be the keynote. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Right. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And we have so many more questions. This book is fascinating. It touches so many different areas that communists are talking about. Yeah. So I I I really appreciate you coming and I hope we can talk some more real soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's been fun and I'm ha- I'll be happy to talk more. Yeah. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Catch you later. See ya. Hi everyone, Jamie here. 
I hope you've enjoyed the first part of our interview with Emmy O'Brien and Iman Abdelhadi about their book, Everything for Everyone, An Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052-2072. to If you liked it, I've got some great news for you. There's like an hour more. It's a great second half, if I do say so myself. Uh, We cover all sorts of topics from the book, including national liberation, gender, climate change, technology, and outer space. To get the full version of this interview, simply go to patreon.com slash everybody loves communism or fans.fm slash everybody loves communism and sign up as a supporter. You will also get access to our Discord community and all kinds of really fun paywalled content. So thank you as always for your support and uh, yeah, do the reading.